Good morning. It's great to be with you on this Lord's Day. Today is a special day. It's my darling wife's birthday, so happy birthday to her. And it's also the day on the church calendar known as Palm Sunday. And hence, we are going to spend our time this morning considering a specific aspect of this particular time in the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus makes his entry into the city of Jerusalem, with the culminating point of his life and work quickly approaching. So Luke chapter 19 is going to be our text. And if you have a Bible, could you please open it to the Gospel according to Luke in the 19th chapter. Our particular focus is going to be from verse 41 down to 45, but I'd like to read from verse 29 to set the scene. So Luke chapter 19, reading from verse 29, hear the word of God as he speaks to us. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask of you, why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee with even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Amen. And the title for the sermon this morning is The Weeping King. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather uh, as your people this morning to worship. We know that you are worthy of worship, and we pray that what we have offered thus far was acceptable in your sight. And as we come to your word, we know that we need to hear from you. And hence, Father, we ask that all distractions and hindrances that, that seeks to snatch away the good seed of the word would be removed. 
Father, we pray that our hearts would be soft and receptive for the word you have for us this morning. It is our desire to be like Christ, and we ask that you help us by your Spirit with this. For we ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. The triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is a part of his life and ministry that you and I really enjoy. We like it because it feels right. It is appropriate. Finally, Jesus is being rightly recognized. For so much of Jesus' ministry, he was despised and rejected of men. And many of the adoring crowds following him you know, simply cared only for what they could get out of him in a physical sense. And most of the audience rejected any kind of personal commitment to Jesus. But on this day, Jesus was pra- praised, he was adored, and it seems most fitting. The public praise and adoration feels so right. The people laying out their garments, the palm branches, and crying out, Hosanna. It finally seems as though Jesus is being recognized and treated in a way that is appropriate in light of his identity. That being the King of Kings. And yet in this moment of adoration... This time of profound joy. Consider how Jesus responds. You know, he, he weeps. This is a striking and stunning turn of events. It's completely and utterly unexpected. To the human eye, it looks as though Jesus is finally being treated as the king that he is. Finally, the people have recognized it. And while the crowds rejoiced, Jesus wept. While the crowds were filled with joy, Jesus was filled with sorrow. While the crowds celebrated, Jesus mourned. Verse 41 tells us that Jesus saw the city and he wept. This term wept is the strongest Greek word for weeping. And it speaks not of a little sob or the occasional tear, but rather denotes agonized sobbing. Wailing, mourning, lamenting, a strong, broken hearted emotion. This term was used when one was mourning the death of a loved one. And Jesus comes to a particular place where he can see the city in its entirety and he breaks down in a deep and emotional display. A wailing and mourning as if one had died. That is the picture. And what a stunning contrast. The people that had gathered were filled with joy and adoration, and yet the king was in a state of mourning. Now, How bizarre this must have seemed for they who witnessed it. What was going on? Why such a reaction? Wouldn't one think that Jesus would be joyous at this time? So how are we to understand this particular event, and what does it teach us? I want to ask three questions, and I trust this will help us understand the deep devastation of Jesus. So number one, why was he weeping? Number two, what does the weeping teach us about Jesus? 
And number three, how should we respond? So why, what, and how? So firstly, why was he weeping? Now what was it that brought on such an intense reaction at this time? Why such a loud lamentation like one had died? What was the cause? Well, as Jesus looked around, there was much cause for weeping. If you looked backwards to his entire ministry, he could see how the nation had wasted its opportunity. Notice in verse 44, it says they had been ignorant of their time of visitation. Oh, Christ had dwelt amongst them, that the God-man, and for the most part, he was rejected. And this is evidenced so clearly in the cross accounts. The Messiah came and they cried out, crucify him. This is part of the devastation. But also, if Jesus looked within, he saw the spiritual blindness and deadness of the people. Notice in verse 42, it speaks of not knowing peace. This term peace speaks of peace with God, saving peace. And they had missed this. The majority had missed true salvation. And Jesus saw their spiritual ignorance and hardness of hearts. These people should have known who he was. They should have known the point and purpose of his coming. And yet this was missed. Jesus offered soul salvation and this had been ignored. And this too was also part of the cause. Now Jesus could have also looked around and saw the superficial, shallow and hypocritical religious activity that accomplished so little. Uh, The temple had become a den of thieves. The religious leaders were trying to kill him. At this time, the city was full of Passover pilgrims. People that had gathered to celebrate the Passover and yet they missed the true Passover lamb. Now sure, there may have been religion, but it wasn't true religion. And this grieved Jesus. And we see this in the cleansing of the temple that follows this account. And also as Jesus looked ahead, he wept when he saw the coming judgment that was going to be unleashed upon Jerusalem because they rejected Messiah. Verses 43 and 44 record for us a prophecy of woe. And it is a prophecy that very precisely predicts the divine judgment that was just around the corner. Jerusalem would be rejected for it rejected Jesus and this caused him much pain. So as Jesus looked back, as he looked within, as he looked around, as he looked ahead, this was all the cause of this intense reaction of the king as he looked over the city. But I think we can basically summarize the cause of this weeping under two main reasons. Number one, they rejected him and missed the point of his ministry. And number two, this rejection would result in judgment. Isaiah 53 verse 3 prophesied the rejection of Messiah. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus would be rejected and despised by men. And this was certainly fulfilled very literally. 
We see this very clearly when Jesus is offered to the crowd to be released and they cry out, crucify him. But Jesus was rejected throughout his entire ministry. As John 1.11 says, he came unto his own and his own received him not. His own people had ignored and rejected him. They failed to understand the significance of Jesus. God had visited them, but they rejected him. They had failed to comprehend who Jesus was and what he came offering. That they missed the message of salvation, that being that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as a result of rejecting Messiah and his message, these things were now hid from their eyes. Verse 42, this was the divine judgments. They ignored it and God blinded them. And it was this that devastated Jesus. He wept over the hardness of the people. He lamented their lost condition. What was distressed over their rejection of him and distressed with what they were about to do to him. Now, the Lord was distraught that he had visited his people. He came unto them and they rejected him. And as one writer said, Jerusalem had a special season of mercy and privilege. The Son of God himself visited her. The mightiest miracle that man had ever seen were wrought around her. The most wonderful preaching that was ever heard was preached within her walls. The days of our Lord's ministry were days of the clearest calls to repentance and faith that any city ever received, but they were all disregarded. And this is why Jesus wept, for they rejected him and the message that he proclaimed. And since they rejected the visitation of mercy, a visitation of judgment was coming. And this forms the second reason why Jesus responded in the way in which he did. The master's prophetic eye beholds the horrendous and cataclysmic judgment that would be released upon Egypt, not Egypt, sorry, that's Exodus, in Jerusalem in less than one generation. Verses 43 and 44 are a prophecy of woe. And the first phrase in verse 43, For the day shall come upon thee. This is an Old Testament expression of coming judgment. We see this in Isaiah 39.6, Amos 4.2 and other places. And Jesus prophesies very precisely the devastating judgment that would be released upon Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans under the leadership of Titus. Jesus predicts that the city would be surrounded, that there would be no escape, great would be the loss of life, no stone will be left unturned. It would be destroyed in such a way that the city would look as though it was never inhabited. And this prophecy was fulfilled very literally. If you know anything about history, Jerusalem was utterly devastated. It's estimated that 600,000 died. The city was destroyed. The temple, the walls were pulled down. If you are interested, read Josephus who documents the great tragedy that unfolded in revealing detail. And you will see that what Jesus predicted was fulfilled. Now here are just a couple of snippets from the works of Josephus. He said, All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews. 
together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged, the children also, and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. He also said why the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priest alike were massacred. There was horrifying amounts of death. Unspeakable activities were undertaken in order to simply survive. And the city was torn to pieces stone by stone. This was devastating. And this was the judgment that Jesus predicted was coming. And it was this future judgment upon this city because they rejected Jesus and his offer of salvation that caused him to weep. So this is why he wept, because of the rejection and the forthcoming judgment. So secondly, what does this weeping teach us about Jesus Throughout church history, there has actually been attempts to blot this account out of the Bible. Because some read Jesus weeping and they see this as imperfection. An action that potentially erodes the deity of Christ. For they reason that perfection can't weep. But what this account reveals is the fact that Jesus shared in full humanity. And and that's the first thing this teaches us about Jesus. I do think at times that we in evangelical circles are so determined to defend the deity of Christ, the fact that He is God, and, and rightly so, we should defend that. That's vitally important. But we need to be careful not to undermine the humanity of Jesus. For His humanity is a necessity to be our substitute, to be our second Adam. Jesus has to possess full humanity in order to die in our place. And we know that He partook full humanity. That the same humanity as you and I, yet without sin. That that's the only difference. So Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God, fully man, two natures united in one person, without mixture or part. This is Jesus. And Jesus, as a result of his humanity, got tired. He needed sleep and rest, just like you and me. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He needed food and water. And he also had emotions and feelings like us. Jesus took to himself real humanity in all of its weakness and frailty. That is the wonder of the incarnation, that God took to himself human flesh. And the genuineness of the human nature of Jesus is seen so clearly in the text before us. For he is moved to weep. This sorrow is a sign of his real manhood. My friend, Jesus was a real man and this qualifies him to be our saviour. That's important. And it also qualifies him to be our sympathetic high priest. For my friend, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer and hurt. 
He's qualified to aid and assist us through the difficulties of life that we face, for He knows what it's like to suffer. For He suffered in a greater way than we will ever suffer. And Jesus knows what we are going through, for He possessed true humanity. But this account not only shows Jesus' humanity, but it also reveals the heart of God. Now remember that Jesus reveals God the Father to us. If we want to know what the Father is like, we have to look to Jesus, look to the Son. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So, so we haven't seen God, but Jesus has declared Him. This word, declared, is a translation of a Greek word where we get the English word exegesis. And you've probably heard of that term. It's a term that is used of preaching. It speaks of explaining, to give the sense and the meaning of the text. And, And this is what Jesus does. He exegetes the Father for us, reveals what the Father is like. And we see before us the compassion and pity that is present in the heart of God. These people had rejected Jesus. And yet his heart is so filled with tender compassion towards them that as he considers their predicament, as he considers the judgment that is coming, he's moved to tears, to, to a state of deep depression, of loud lamentation. He pities the hard-heartedness of the people. He's sorrowful over their lost condition and the future judgment that awaits them. And this, beloved, reveals the heart of God even now. God is a God of love. He has compassion and pity for all humanity. His heart is wide enough and big enough to take an interest in all mankind. Yes, He has a special love for the redeemed. If you are His children, He loves you in a special way, in an eternal way, in a way that will never cease. But it's also true that God loves all humanity. He is full of pity for man's self-inflicted predicaments. The Scriptures tell us that God is willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That, my friend, is God's desire. That reveals His heart. And the love of God is proven in the provision of Jesus Christ to provide salvation. To provide salvation for you and me from the predicament that we put ourselves in. And this salvation has been made available to all, but but you must appropriate You must believe. My friend, God is not hard and callous to the predicaments that lost and fallen mankind find themselves in and the judgment that awaits them. You know, this is revealed before us. There is compassion and pity in the heart of God. So we see the humanity of Jesus, the heart of God, and we also see that God judges. Now, the reality of judgment for rejecting Jesus is shown very clearly before us, that that can't be missed. And I want to make two points about this. So number one, judgment is not unleashed gleefully. Jesus shows us the heart of God. 
how even when judgment must be pronounced, it's never done with glee. There is weeping in the heart of God even when His judgment is perfectly just and righteous. That there wasn't a a happiness and a joy in Jesus' heart when He pondered the judgment that would rain down on Jerusalem. But rather He was moved with pity and compassion. And this leads to the second point that I want to make. God's love doesn't remove judgment. Now, how often have you heard it said, how can a God of love send people to hell? Have you heard that before? But it's illustrated here so clearly that the love of God, that that His compassion does not override or counter the justice of God. The pity that Jesus showed didn't stop judgment. Now, my friend, God loves us in a way that is beyond our comprehension. He's willing that none should perish in the lake of fire, remembering that He created that for Satan and the demons, but but God is just and holy. We mustn't forget that. And sin must be punished. There must be righteous judgments. And hence, eternal punishment in hell is a reality. Don't miss that, my friend. But the love of God does not remove punishments, but rather His nature ensures and guarantees it. And hence, if one rejects Jesus, if one rejects the gospel, then they will face judgment just as Jerusalem did. Now, this is the teaching of the Bible. And I implore you to, to, to not be like Jerusalem. Don't reject Jesus, for if you do, judgment is coming your way. Your sin must be punished. It must be judged. God's love and compassion does not override His justice. We must not swallow the lie of the world where everybody will just be allowed into heaven by default. For that's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's only they who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that will be allowed to enter. Only they who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross, only they will be allowed into heaven. And I trust that this is you this morning. For my friend, that there is a judgment coming. Hell is real. But you can come to Christ and you can be saved. Don't reject Jesus. Don't reject the gospel. Don't reject the cross. And for judgment is very real. So this is what the account teaches us about Jesus. His humanity, his compassion, and his judgment. So this answers the what question. So thirdly, let's answer the how question. How should we respond? As believers, it is to be our goal to conform to the image of Christ. It is to be our desire to be more like Jesus. And hence, may we weep over the things that made Him weep. May we be moved with compassion and pity over the things that moved Jesus with compassion and pity. Jesus before us sets the example. Jesus was burdened for the lost condition of the people of Jerusalem and was grieved over the judgment that they were going to endure. And my friend, the application that I want to present is this. You know, we too ought to be burdened for the lost. 
Uh, We too ought to have a compassion and a pity for they who are outside of Christ. For they who are going to be judged not by Rome, but by God for all eternity in the lake of fire. Beloved, we should possess a burden for, for souls to come to Christ. To be grieved over the lost condition of our family, our friends, our neighbours, our community. That should be our disposition. And yet, how often this is not the case. How often we think very little about the unsaved. We are rarely concerned about the lost condition of those around us. How often there is a real lack of urgency and compassion towards the lost. And this is revealed in our lack of evangelistic zeal. How often we go weeks, we go months without sharing the gospel. And my friend, this is disobedience and it's a sign of a heart that lacks concern about the unconverted. How often we are not like Jesus. For our hearts become calloused and unconcerned about the lost around us. But my friend, as one writer said... We know little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbours are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. But a man of this spirit is very unlike David, who said, Rivers of water run down my eyes because men keep not thy law. He's very unlike Paul, who said, I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brethren. And above all, he is very unlike Jesus. If Jesus felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. And beloved, may may the Holy Spirit do a mighty work in our hearts. And may we possess a burden and a passion for the lost souls around us to come to Christ. May may the Spirit produce in us an evangelistic zeal and enthusiasm to share the gospel with those around us. Or may the Holy Spirit cure us of any evangelistic slothfulness and lack of concern that may be present. And may we as a church... And may we as individuals be known for having a compassion for the lost. And may we be more like Jesus. May his heart be seen in us even a little. And may we be touched by his care, concern and compassion towards the lost. And may the Holy Spirit this day infuse in you and me a passion and concern for those outside of Christ and produce in us a courage and a boldness to obey our Lord and share the gospel with every, every living creature. For that, my friend, is our duty. You know, may God help us with this. Amen.